The title of my sermon this morning is At Your Service. At Your Service. Uh, this was a, a heavy week in Western culture, in particular for our brothers and sisters in the UK, uh, having, having lost their queen, uh, Queen Elizabeth, uh, the longest reigning monarch in, in British history, if not in uh, you know, the nations of the world in terms of having a monarch, a monarch that reigned that long. She was known widely for her devotion and her strong sense of duty to her people as a, a servant of God. Uh, so we're going to be talking about uh, being servants of, of God and on a week like this where you, you have a monarch pass and, and, and 70 year reign, 70 years of service. What, a, what an incredible legacy. What an incredible legacy. Uh, I, I was uh, just going through and watching different news stations and, uh, you know, different commentaries and uh, reading different things and uh, lots of folks highlighting her love for the Lord. I want a, a quote here from uh, one of her speeches, uh, how, and she says, I just know how much I rely on my faith to guide me throughout the good times and the bad. Each day is a new beginning. I know that the only way that to live my life is to try to do what is right, to take a long view, to give of my best in all that the day brings, and to put my trust in God. I draw strength from the message of hope in the Christian gospel. Uh, what a, what, she was a, a woman of, of faith, a woman who was uh, you know, polite and proper in terms of her faith. She wasn't pushing it in people's faces or being a hypocrite, but uh, just a, a, a pleasant woman who served her, her nation well. And so today, as we uh, step into the Word of God, I'm going to need you to open your Bibles to Psalm 100, and we are going to see in Psalm 100, and later we'll jump into the New Testament, and we'll see in 1 Peter, we'll see texts talking about how we have been commanded and called to be servants of God. And oh, that we would have a legacy like the Queen to be able to say we served, you know, seven decades in faithfulness to our Lord. So I want to talk about this idea of service and what it means to serve God. To, to, to be at your service is a colloquialism in our culture that we use to say, I'm available, I'm, I'm at your disposable, at, at your disposal, I'm, I'm, I'm at hand, I'm here, I'm willing, I'm ready, I'm at your service, tell me what you would have of me. Now it is one thing to do something in theory, it is another thing to do something in practice. So as we come to the Word of God this morning, I, I pray that as we learn from it, the Lord would move us in practice, in the practice of service. As you have opened your Bibles to the book of Psalms, this book in the Bible, the book of Psalms, is the hymnal of God's ancient people Israel, the people of promise. Many of the hymns in, uh, in the book of Psalms, many of these songs, these hymns, were offered in two ancient temples of God in Jerusalem as well in a variety of corporate gatherings when God's people would come together in repentance and faith as thankful and joyful worshipers of God. As we come together this day in worship of God and now in the study of his, of his word, Psalm 100 is one that his people have been reading and singing and, 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 and reflecting on for quite a long time and it, and it has shown itself through the sands of time to bear much fruit and I pray it will this morning in our hearts. In Psalm 100, by way of context, this psalm comes on the heels of a section in the book of Psalms, chapter 95 through 99, that are enthronement psalms. These are royal psalms. These are the psalms that would be used when you crown a, a new ruler, uh, thinking of, of the passing of the, of the queen, and now there's a new king. Uh, in ancient Israel, when there was a new ruler, you would break out those psalms and you would read them as a part of the ceremony and the ritual of bringing in a new ruler. Enthronement psalms are royal psalms. They're royal, they're enthronement. They emphasize not only earthly rule, but God as the ultimate royal ruler over all of creation and significantly and especially over his people Israel. He, the creator of the universe, was the king of Israel, not by their doing, but by his doing, and specifically by his covenant or his promise to them. 
by His promise, His covenant, He made them a promised people. In Jewish tradition, Psalm 100 is known by its first two words, Mesor la Toda, which means a song of thanksgiving. The psalm gives thanks to the royal ruler of Israel and of the earth, calling the earth, the inhabitants of the earth, calling them all to come to Him, to come and enter into His covenant, and to serve Him, to have a heart, to come before God and say, we are at your service. Psalm 100, let's begin reading the text. Shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness and come before Him with joyful singing. There you see the command of, of service. And so as we get into the text this morning, we're going to be talking about what it is to obey this command of service. What, what, do, what does it mean to, to serve God? Now as we get into the text, you'll see on your outline the first point is some preliminary thoughts. I want to talk to you about this calling of serving God, the call to obey this command that is before God's people to serve Him. Not just any old service, but a service that is marked by gladness, you see in the text. You see, God wants and God deserves and God commands our gladness and our joy to be in His service. It's, it's, not, it's not enough to obey Him if you're doing it begrudgingly. Uh, he wants and deserves your, your joy and obedience to Him. The heart of true service before God is marked by joy. And you know that in relationships as well. You know, if you asked your spouse for a kiss and they said, Ugh, I don't want to, but mm, okay. You know, you're like, oh, you could just keep that kiss. That, just keep it all over there. Or, that, you know, or you ask your children, hey, can you, you, know, can you take out the trash? you know and then they take out the trash it's like really I mean come on like that you know what why like just hey yes dad you know I don't know sing a hymn I love my dad I hate the trash you know be be joyful with it for Pete's sake with this is what relationship this is what being in a family is this is you know this is what life is you know when you're when you're joyful in it we don't serve God begrudgingly uh, we're, we're not supposed to do that. Part of obeying Him is not only doing what is asked of us, but doing it with the right heart. We all have, and we, we've, we've all been there, where we've white-knuckled it and forced ourselves to do something, and our attitudes were bad, and maybe we poker-faced our way through it, and there's times where no doubt you have to do that, but the sweet spot is when the heart is rejoicing in obedience. That's true service. And in that true service, there is lasting reward before our King. Look at the text, verse 3. Know that the Lord Himself is God. It is He who has made us and not ourselves. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. The psalm reminds the worshiper that the Lord Himself is God. Not, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't get His divinity, His deity from some other source. He, he's, not, he's not plugged into the wall to get his energy. He's, he, he, he himself is divine. The psalm reminds the worshiper that his or her standing before God is, is, is in the God who is God. Further, their standing before God is in the God who has made them, in the God who has called them, and that calling was not, look at verse 3, of themselves. The psalmist reminds the worshipers that their standing before God is not their doing, but it's God's doing, not we ourselves. God made them both creationally and covenantally. He brought them creationally into existence. Genesis chapter 1, 2. He brought humanity into existence. He made our father and mother. I, I brought you into life. You didn't do anything to deserve to be created. Life itself is a gift. So I, 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 I brought you creationally and I brought you covenantally. I made you my people by my word, by my promise, just as he created by his word in the creation. And so that it's in Him, it's His doing, and so our life and our standing is in Him. 
God gave them existence and creation and salvation and covenant. God makes them not just creatures, but he makes them his sheep. He is the faithful shepherd who watches over them and, and, and who stands over them as this loving father who cares for them, who tends to them. Look at verse 4 in the text. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. The Hashem, the name of God. This is to specify who we're talking about. I, I, the psalmist is saying, I'm not talking about any old God. I'm talking about the one true and living God. In a culture like ours where, you know, uh, people more and more have been impacted by the philosophy of relativism and, and more and more impacted by also the hypocrisy of religion, claims like this God is the only God will, will trigger people. It will trigger people. People will go caring on you and want to talk to the manager. Well, this is the manager. This is the manager. This is God, the, the name, Hashem. This is who I'm talking about. This is the only God who is. Well, there's lots of different religions. That's very narrow-minded of you. I, I'm not denying that there's lots of different religions. All I'm doing is pointing out the, the, the logic that while there might be lots of different options, there's one, only one option that's actually real. They all can't be real. They contradict one another. Two plus two can't be four and seven. It turns out that out of all of the numbers that we have, out of all of the options that we have, the only correct answer to 2 plus 2 is 4. You're so narrow-minded. I, I, I know. I, I guess I'll, I'll just I'll wear that, you know? And what's wrong with being narrow-minded anyway? If you're going in for brain surgery, do you want the surgeon to be narrow-minded and, and focused, you know? Do you want to try out new things? You know, I just feel like I'll just do a little something different today. No. When I fly on a plane, I want that pilot to be as narrow-minded as possible. I don't need you doing different stuff up there, messing around, trying. No, no. You, you, do, you do what you do. Stay focused on it. That's not, there's nothing inherently wrong with that for Pete's sake. We're dealing with God here. Enter into his gates. Come to him. Bless him for who he is. Bless his name. The psalmist is describing him as a shepherd. It's, a, it's beautiful imagery. Beautiful imagery. If you, if you have the ability to travel to a culture where there, there are shepherds, or, and there are places in our country, in fact, where there are shepherds, and you, you watch them, and you see how they care, and you see how they guide, and you see how they provide, and you see animals uh, that are so fragile, in particular sheep, they're quite dumb animals, which uh, is sort of telling that the metaphor is used of us, but, you know, they, they get into a lot of trouble. They'll, they'll run right off of a cliff. They'll bang their heads into, they, they do all kinds of goofball stuff. They get sick, they, they, they all, you know, sheep, you know, and, and here you have this shepherd who's, who's caring for them. Look at verse 5, for the Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting and his faithfulness to all generations. Oh, he's a faithful God. He doesn't turn on you. You, you, you've had people turn on you, no doubt, if you've lived life long enough. You've had people turn on you. In the, recent, in the last three years, a lot of folks have turned on a lot of folks. You, you say the wrong thing, you know, bam, bam, you know. People are, people are going crazy these days. You've, you'll have people turn on you, people who say, I'm your friend forever. You say the wrong thing, they're gone. No, no, God, God is a faithful God. And we say the wrong thing to him all the time, and we, we post the wrong stuff all the time, and he's not flying in and unfollowing and lighting us up. He's a loving, loving God. Read in verse 5 of his loving kindness. Read in verse 5 of his faithfulness to all generations. In mind here in Psalm 100 are the promises of God to the generations flowing from Abraham to Moses to David. Concerning his people, the promise to give them a place, a land, prosperity in the land flowing with milk and honey, and a progeny to the generations. In, in, in Hebrew, in verse 5, the psalmist speaks of God's chesed. This is a word that in recent uh, sermons that I've preached, we've been in the book of Psalms, and we've seen the significance of the term chesed. 
It is a word that describes loyalty. It is a word that we render loving kindness. Uh, we, we sort of struggle to find the right word in English to render chesed, but it, it's a loyal, uh, loving kindness and charity all bound up in it. All of the reasons, of course, to respond in joy are because of his chesed. Why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I joyfully obey him? Serve the Lord, verse 2. Well, look, at well, he's faithful. He's loving. He, he doesn't turn his back on me. Why, why, why wouldn't I serve him? Now, with the call to serve God, by way of introduction to today's message, I'm going to take us into uh, the New Testament, and we're going, to, we're going to see some things in the New Testament as well. But as we're stepping into things, what I want to do in the preliminary thoughts here on the first chunk of the sermon is to walk you through the storyline of redemption. As the psalmist is talking about his faithfulness to the generations, we'll, we move from Abraham to Moses to David to the seed of Abraham and the seed of David, who is Jesus, who is, who is God in the flesh. The one God, the Creator God, who is Father, Son, and Spirit. This is the first subpoint here, the Creator, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, who created all things. We'll see that the Son has incarnated in the story of redemption and steps into human history as the seed of Abraham and David to fulfill the covenant, the promise, and to extend its blessings to the nations of the world. Now the ancient Jewish hymn in front of us, Psalm 100, depicts the creation shouting in joy before the Creator. In the ancient Jewish account of, of the creation, in the book of Genesis, we read of the very beginning. We read of God giving life, of God, of God creating, and we read of His, of His covenant. Creation gives life, covenant gives new life, gives salvation, you see. And we're in need of salvation because something happens in between creation and covenant that we'll talk about in just a moment. The book of Genesis, if you were reading it in the ancient Hebrew, it's known as Bereshit. Bereshit uh, is, is the very way that it opens, in beginning, Bereshit. In the inspired text of Genesis, God is depicted as he is, as the master of the universe. And so as the master of the universe, as he's creating life on earth and giving life, it, it's, it's understood in Bereshit that he's the owner of it all. Um, you know, you, maybe you had old school parents who were like, I brought you into this world, I'll take you out of it. You know, <laughs> like, oh, okay. That was before we had, uh, you know, DCFS and, uh, you know, hotlines and whatever. We just got traumatized the old school way. Uh, I brought you into this world, I'll take you out of it. Well, he brought, he brought not only into the world, he, he brought the world into, he, like, he created. It's all his. It's all his. Life is in his hands. He owns it. It's his property. This, whole, this ball that we're spinning around space on right now, and you, you are his property. And he placed you in this earth to be his servants, to serve him. And so the call to serve him, this is a call that comes from the very beginning of the creation. We're called to be his servants. Or to use a stronger word, we're called to be his slaves. See, slave is a more appropriate word because a slave is owned by the master. A servant, you know, kind of waters it down a little bit. It's, you know, I go in, I get my paycheck, I serve the guy, whatever, and then I have my own time. A slave never has his or her own time. So in Genesis, we see God creates humans as his possessions. And he places them inside of his field to work the field as his slaves. English translations in the book of Genesis, in particular Genesis 2.5 and 2.15, will say, oh, he puts them in the, in the garden to cultivate or whatever. And it, it sounds uh, really pretty, you know, it's like Martha Stewart-y. You get your gloves on and you're just planting flowers or whatever. Uh, but the word in the Hebrew is abad. And avad is a word that means to become slaves, to, to, to be in service. He puts them in the field and says, work it. I'm the master. I made you. Go to the field and work it. This is the same word that is used in Psalm 110 in verse 2 in front of us, avad. Now, because of the horrors and the wickedness 
of, of the transatlantic slave trade and uh, white supremacy and, and subsequent the, uh, Jim Crow and all the horrors of slavery in our culture, we shy away from translating avad and other biblical terms as slave when they appear inside of the Bible because we got, that it brings up images of, you know, I don't know, roots and kunta kente, and you're like, oh, man, what, you know, is, oh, is God going to chop my legs off and whip my back and all this, you know, all that dark, twisted stuff or whatever? So, so we typically, in our translations, we'll, we'll, we soften it a bit, you know. So at your service, we say colloquially, but I want you to understand this as more slavery. He, he owns you. You are not your own, the Bible says. Now, uh, in our romantic and individualized culture, we, you know, we like to talk about God as our lover. You know, he loves us. He's our lover. He's my friend. He's my friend. Jesus, take the wheel. You know, he's my Uber driver. You know, we, we like these kinds of, you know, we write songs like that. You know, hug me, Jesus. Jesus is my boyfriend songs. And we really hesitate to call him master. But it's biblical. He's our master. He is the master of the universe. This is actually why human slavery is inherently demonic and evil. Because you are taking what belongs to God. You are saying, I'm the master of this man. No, no, no. That man already has a master. How dare you? How dare you assert yourself in such a position? This is why in the, in, in, inside of Scripture, these terms like Avad are, are so strong it, it, and, and they're teaching us, look, this is what makes it so evil. You are asserting yourself in the position of God when you claim to own another man. And, and you read Moses in Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 24. You know, the law of Moses actually called for the death penalty for human trafficking. If you kidnapped a human, if you took a human and said, I, I own this human, it, they called for the death penalty for that. It's actually, when you claim to own another human, it's kind of like theological thievery. You're taking what belongs to God and to Him alone. Included in the Ten Commandments, we read in Exodus 20, verse 15, you shall not steal. Do you know that the ancient Jewish readers and rabbis, they understood thou shalt not steal to include the taking of humans? Slavery is condemned in the Big Ten. This, this, is, this is common knowledge for those who understand the Hebrew Scriptures. In fact, in the New Testament as well, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9-11, through 11, the Apostle Paul quotes Moses, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. He's listing them out in 1 Timothy 1, 9-11. He's listing them out, and when he gets to the Eighth Commandment, he translates the Hebrew with the Greek, andropodistes, which is a word that means enslaver. He says, look, this is condemned inside of, this is condemned inside of Exodus. The Apostle Paul goes for it and says, you, you can't do this. Slavery is wicked. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says that the andropatistes, the, the, the thieves, the kleptes, which is another word that he uses, he says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Enslavers? will not inherit the kingdom of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10. That word, that word that he uses in 1 Corinthians 6, 10, kleptase, is the same word get, that gets used in the Septuagint. This is the same word that gets used in the Septuagint in Genesis 40, verse 15, for the enslavement of Joseph. Slavery is a scandal in the Bible. It's a scandal in God's eyes because we belong to him. We belong to him. Human slavery is a rebellion against the master uh, because he has made us to be his property and to be his slaves, his servants. So then we must not let the wicked and evil practice of slavery among humans distort the design of the creator as our master, the only master, the only master, the only one who has a right to claim the ownership of others is the one who is the giver of life, who holds life in his hands. Now we move from this loving creator who is our master to the next point on the outline, that is crash. There's a crash that takes place between creation and covenant. There's something that happens, I said, and it's crash. I like the word crash. We talk about it as a fall. We'll say there's the fall. 
I like crash a bit better. Uh, one, it keeps my C alliteration going, but two, it, it, it gives a better image of what happens. If you think of, uh, you know, like a mom and a dad and some kids in the back of a minivan and, you know, dad is mad at mom or whatever and just crashes the car, you know, everyone's in the accident. And that's exactly what has taken place with our mother and father when they rebelled against the creator. We were in the van with them and we're all impacted by it. In Genesis, before the crash, we see uh, with the creation that God made our mother and father to serve him. We, we talked already about they were told to avad, to work the field. And here's this loving master who gives them this, this field to, to, to cultivate and to work. The inhabitants of, of the light, they're in a garden, they're enjoying his presence. But these inhabitants of the light, our mom and dad, they decided to serve the kingdom of darkness. And when they did, when they took this van and crashed it, they became slaves to sin. Look at the text of uh, John 8, 34 and Romans 6 through 8. You see it very clear. We became slaves to sin. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, we read the world is, is lying under the power of the evil one. The devil is the original thief. He is andropodistes. He is kleptes. He wanted to be the master, but he owned nothing, and so he stole it. And his thievery and his lies, his terrorism, his violence continues today. Along with our parents who, who followed him, it wasn't just them. They brought us along in this thing. They were exiled from the garden. They were uh, booted out of paradise. They were, not only that, they were alienated by their true master. And in sin, in sin, the, the, the true master is, is now resented and rebelled against and, and denied as a part of our rationalization of sin. We don't like having a master anymore. We don't like being told what to do. We like to do what we want to do. And we forget that the master is good. He's faithful. He's said. He's, he's loving. He's, he, he doesn't turn on you. He's, he's good. Enslavement to God was peaceful. It was epic. It's a garden. There's no shame. There's no guilt. They're uncovered. Everything's wonderful. Harmonious. Restful. There's, there's Sabbath. There's rest. Antithetically, the slavery uh, that the devil brought is marked by conflict, disharmony, and restlessness. So you see in human history, and you can read in the historical narratives of the Bible even, instances of enslavement. And wherever you see instances of enslavement in, in narratives inside of the Bible describing what did happen, not necessarily what should happen, I'll say more about that in a moment, you see crash, smash, things ruined, things destroyed. And speaking about slavery in the narratives of the Bible, often people who want to be... Uh, you know, want to be Bible scholars because they watched a couple YouTubes, they'll attack the Bible and they'll say, oh, the Bible, you know, it supports slavery. Yeah, the Bible, it supports slavery. No, it doesn't. Aside from what I already just showed you in terms of the penalty for slavery inside of Scripture and God being the master over humanity and why that's a scandal, you can appeal to texts inside of the Bible that are narratives and say, oh, there's instances of slavery, but in so doing that, if you want to use that to marshal an argument that the Bible is pro-slavery, the only thing that you're proving is that you don't understand how literature works. Because narratives describe, they don't prescribe. And we all know a difference between a description and a prescription. If you go to the doctor with a rash on your hand and all he does is describe, you're going to be quite upset. Well, sir, you got a rash, it's really flaky, it's red, looks horrible, it's inflamed. Uh, what else can I say about it? It smells, uh, and he just sat there describing, go, uh, doctor, can you make a prescription for this, please, and stop describing? Because there's a difference between describing and prescribing. You know what? The Bible describes a lot of wicked things. But there's a difference between describing what did happen and prescribing what should happen. And everyone who understands literature knows that. So when you're reading a historical account, it's like, oh, yeah, and then that guy killed that guy. Oh, that was bad, you know, and then that guy raped that guy. Oh, that, was, that got darker, and then he 
killed his kids. And then, you know, the Bible is filled with all kinds of darkness in the narratives, in the descriptions, not in the prescriptions. In the prescription, don't steal. In the prescription, oh, if you try to own another human, rocks for you. You know, it throws down. Don't do that. In the prescriptive sections, in the descriptive sections, yeah, there's slavery in the Bible. There's polygamy in the Bible. There's paganism in the Bible. There's all kinds of horrible things inside of the Bible. Uh, just describing what we do when we do us. <laughs> I mean, that, that's how that works. Now, thankfully, God is not caught off guard by our sinfulness. Thankfully, the Bible records our darkness, reminding us of our need of Him. Thankfully, the Bible moves from the crash to the cross, which leads us to see on your outline Christ. Through His covenant to Abraham, through His, his law to Moses, through His promise to David, He brings the one who will save humanity. He brings what our father, what our father failed to do. He brings one who is obedient to the law. He brings one who will sacrifice himself for our sin. He brings, mind you, not a third party, for the one who is brought is one with the Father and the Spirit. So he is God, the Son. And so the Son comes and becomes a man and lives the life that our daddy didn't live to provide for us what we otherwise would not have. And he freely gives that for us. And in so doing that, you know what he is doing? He is pulling us out of slavery to sin, pulling us out of this enslavement by the serpent, and he's bringing us home to his Father, who is the rightful master of us from the beginning. You know Jesus' first sermon in the Gospel of Luke? His first sermon that he got to preach. His first sermon, Luke chapter 4. What does he preach? He preaches abolition. He says, I've come to set the captives free. It's, this is Harriet Tubman. This is Underground Railroad. I have come to set the captives free. I've come to rescue the slaves from the kingdom of darkness and to bring them home to the true master who is loving and caring and calls them into his service. Jesus says, I've come to ransom. I've come to ransom. Do you know what a ransom is? A ransom is a term that is used in the time of Christ for buying a slave out of the slave market. And when you are ransomed, you're not just, you don't just go, you know, free willy and do your own thing. When you're, you're ransomed, now you come under the ownership of another. You've, you've been ransomed. You've been, in the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, bought with a price. So do not become slaves of men. You weren't set free when he manumitted you to go do your own thing. That would be becoming a slave of a man, yourself. You were bought to be placed in his service. The price being the death of the son. His death in order to rescue you from that enslavement. A life that was marked by being a servant before the father modeling what true enslavement to the Father looks like. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the Son did not come to be uh, 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 served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Verses before this verse, Jesus spoke of Gentile masters who lord their power and, and oppress and, and push down their oppressors, those, those oppressive powers. And, and, and verses before that, Jesus is lamenting and describing this wickedness. And he tells his disciples, if you want to be great, you have to become a slave. A slave of, of the true master. And then comes verse 45. I, I didn't come to do my own thing. I came to be a slave, to serve others. The Apostle Paul in the great Christ hymn in Philippians speaks of the incarnation of the eternal Son and describes him uh, as becoming a slave in Philippians. Paul describes him as the second Adam. The first Adam jumped in the minivan and crashed the thing and got us all in a, in a hot mess of enslavement to sin. And the second Adam comes and he obeys and he frees us from sin to return to the true master. And the true master is forming in this age his church. And his church is called to be all about him and his service. 
So we move from creator to crash to Christ to his church. We have Psalm 100 in front of us. Psalm 100 in front of us is a call to God's people Israel to serve. We are a part of the one people of God in this age of the church. I gave you a, a biblical theology here of enslavement and God's master, uh, God being the master over the creation and over the people of his covenant. And speaking of covenant in the Psalms, we're reminded of God's people Israel and, and we're reminded of the Messiah who was rejected and we're reminded of the church in this parentheses as we were taught by our master and we read it in the public reading of scripture to pray for thy kingdom to come, to pray for the king to return. Now that said, would you move from the book of Psalms into the book of 1 Peter? And when you finish turning the pages and you, you get there to 1 Peter, what you are looking at in the English translation, what you are looking at in the, in the English translation of this ancient letter written in Koine Greek by Peter, or, or Kephas as he's, as he's known, a Jewish disciple of the historic Jesus of Nazareth. Kephas, a Jewish disciple of Jesus of Nazareth. Scholars date this letter to the 60s in the first century. It's a very difficult time in the 60s for followers of Jesus when people that you love would be dying at the hands of the Roman government, which was highly oppressive and pressing down on people, highly gangster. It's just mafioso, the Roman Empire. This was a hard time to be living in the 60s. It was particularly hard in the Jewish community because Rome oppressed your people, hated your people, and now the Jesus movement has begun in the, in the Jewish community. And, and now you have tension because if you're a follower of Jesus, not only does Rome hate you, but your own people probably hate you because the rabbis of the day decided to stand against Jesus because he threatened their hegemony and their power. And so if you were Jewish living in the 60s, like Kephas, like Peter, you suffered. You suffered. And I'm not talking about, oh, he's mean on Instagram or he, he went hard on Twitter on me. I'm talking like throwing rocks, uh, burning your house down, you know, trying to get you in jail. This, this was a very difficult time to be living. And Peter Kephas writes to those people to encourage them to say, hey, you guys, I, I know that it's rough. I know that you are suffering, but rejoice greatly in your distress and your trials verse 6 of chapter 1 of 1 Peter, in this you greatly rejoice even though now for a little while if necessary you have been distressed by various trials. They're going through trials. Now turn to chapter 4 in the text as, as we get into the fourth chapter. Peter's been talking about their trials, talking about their suffering, calling them to have joy in suffering, calling them to sacrifice and service and, and holiness. In the third chapter, he's addressing family ethics, very basic stuff that's foundational to society. And uh, look, you've got to work hard in hard times, and you've got to pull together, okay? Now, chapter 4 flows into this. Draw your eyes at verse 7. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sober judgment, and, and, or sound judgment, and sober spirit for the purposes of prayer. So we move from our preliminary thoughts now into the Petrine text. We've read verse 7. He's describing the end being near. He, he's, he's writing to people who have Roman oppressive powers on their backs, Roman persecution and suffering. And he's reminding his readers, look, it's temporary. The end of all things is near. In light of this, they needed to be like sons of Issachar that we read about in 1 Chronicles 12, 32, who discerned the times. You need to understand the times. You need, to, you need to be sound and you need to be sober. You see, you need to understand what's going on. The end is drawing near. He's calling them to gauge their world. I, I need you to gauge. I need you to have a sound judgment on things. Sound judgment comes from a Greek word, sophroneo. Sophroneo means to, to have mental health, we might say, to, to be discerning. In Jesus' world, the servants of the kingdom of darkness were not known for sophroneo. In fact, in Mark chapter 5 and in Luke chapter 8, if you write that down, you see a man who is possessed by a great demon, the legion, and this man has lost his mind. This man is, is under 
uh, enslavement to the devil. His mind is lost. And when Jesus comes, he delivers the man. And in the original Greek, it says that, that his mind becomes sophroneo when he is delivered from the mastery of the kingdom of darkness. You come into the light, you get sophroneo. You are led by the truth out of error. You have a sober spirit now. This is a gift that comes with salvation. In Greek, these, these words, uh, sophroneo, uh, it's a compound. It's a compound. Nephro means self-control. You've you got to have self-control, you see. Not under the influence of something. You're not, you're not under the power of something else. You're not under the mastery of something else. You have self-control. You're not, you're not led by your own heart and like Disney movies. Follow your heart. Just follow your heart, you know. Don't follow your heart for Pete's sake. Uh, I know in Disney movies it always works out when they follow their hearts, but in real life it doesn't. In Scripture we're warned in Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful and wicked above all things. You know, people don't put that on, on bumper stickers and coffee cups with flowers. Uh, actually, our brother Shannon Begman, uh, well, as a parting gift when they moved, he, he made me a cup with Jeremiah uh, 17.9 on it. It's, it starts conversation when you have company over, you're pouring some coffee in that thing. They're like, what, what's this? Uh, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. Your heart is like the coffee in that cup. It's black. Uh, you need to be rescued from that, you see. So the text is telling us to gauge, to gauge the world, to put things in perspective in hard times. Uh, it, the text, as we're gauging, it's calling us into service. That leads to the second point, giving. Look at verse 8. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Paul wants them, excuse me, Peter wants them to focus on others. The whole point about having a sober spirit and sound judgment and discerning the days that they were living in is to call them to action and to call them to service and love towards one another. Verse, to call them to prayer. Verse 7 closes with prayer and verse 8 calls the believer to one another. Peter wants them to be praying and loving one another. He tells them love covers a multitude of sins. This is a quote from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12. J James also quotes this Proverbs, by the way, uh, this proverb in James 5.20, if you want to look it up. So it appears to be a proverb that was popular among the disciples of Jesus. It was a saying, and, it, and there's a meaning to this saying that's really important in experience. And Peter, Kephas, wants his readers to know. I love the way Dr. Uh, Peter Davids e e explains this. He says, love covers a multitude of sins. Proper relationships, love each other deeply within the Christian community were important to Peter. Here he cites Proverbs 10, 12, which was uh, proverbial in the early church. By love, our author is thinking of forgiving one another. He's not concerned about emotional feelings about other Christians, but rather concrete acts of kindness. Love covers, by the way, of forgiveness and God's grace. Love, love covers... By, by setting you free from that bondage that, that, that you're holding on to and that bitterness. Peter, the same guy, the same guy who asked Jesus, how many times should we forgive, Lord? You know, seven, yeah? Not seven, but 70, brother. 70 times 70, brother. Love covers, love covers. Keep in mind, biblical love is not mere emotion. As, as Dr. Davids has, has noted here, it's not mere emotion. Sure, there are emotions that come from love, but love itself is not a mere emotion. So while the world talks about falling in love and um, they emotionalize love, you know, we need to be careful. You need to kick that little fat baby Cupid off, off and just get rid of those notions. Snap the arrows. That, it's a, that's a bad way of viewing love. A biblical view of love is this, a commitment of the will to the true good of another person. Love is a commitment of the will to the true good of another person. And when you're committed to the true good of another person, sometimes, sometimes, it, it feels really hard. And it hurts. And it's painful. Now we think in terms of 1 Peter 4, 8, and we think of how love covers sin, because love is committed to your good, right? Sin is not committed to your good. Sin promises you all kinds of things that it will never deliver on. Sin is not concerned with your good, but love is. 
Love will mean that I, I don't sin against you. When you sin against me, love will mean that I will forgive you and keep loving. The word in English that, that often gets rendered that's a bit better is forbearance. Forbearance. We've got to bring that word back. Forbearance. Long-suffering. Forbearance. You see, that's the kind of love that Peter is getting at, that Proverbs is getting at, of a forbearing. Look at verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. Don't gripe. Don't moan. Don't complain. Right? You, 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 you're being called into service. Verse 10, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. You, you, you've been given gifts from God. And God wants you to use those gifts to serve with his church in the field, the mission field of the harvest that he is uh, sovereignly working through to draw people to himself. Each one, verse 10, has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as what? Good stewards. You know what stewards are in that first century context? Stewards were slaves. Stewards don't own anything. They're slaves. A, a, a steward would, would be someone who would be a, a, a slave who is in charge of taking care of the stuff of the master. The, the stewards often would be in charge of uh, other slaves as well, just making sure things are in the right place. Dr. David writes, the Christian is a steward. The steward was the person... The steward was the person in the household, often a slave, who was responsible for managing the, the householder's business and property, including providing what was needed for family members, slaves, and hired laborers. Jesus used this image in Luke 12, Luke 16. Paul took the term as a description of proper service in the church. Thus, the Christian, in Peter's view, is a household slave who has control over a certain part of God's property as a gift. Now, mind you, slavery in the biblical world is not the transatlantic slavery of the modern world or human trafficking in the modern world. Uh, for one, it, it, it's race, it was race-based in the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, in the ancient world, it wasn't. Uh, slavery in the ancient world was largely driven around the economy. If you owed someone money and you couldn't pay it off, you would become their indentured servant, a slave, and you would work that off at least, at least for six years, because debts would be canceled every seven years so that no one would be trapped in debt for the rest of their life. Uh, we as moderns can look at that and go, oh, oh, oh. But, you know, I, I, you know, when you start comparing it with what our credit card companies and college debt and all the debt that we rack up and how that just destroys families and lives in the economy, I think the way they were doing it in the first century, hey, you go work your debt off, uh, probably would work a heck of a lot better. And we probably would buy less and consume less if, if, if we did it the old school way. You know, I got to go work for him if I can't pay it? Uh, no, nah, I think I'll just put it on my visa, you know. Anyway, 1 Peter 4.10, you're called stewards. You are called stewards. Oikonomos is the word inside of the Greek. The oikonomos is put in charge, is put in charge of the stuff in that slave context. Look at Luke chapter 12. Let me put this in front of you. The Lord said, Who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants to give them their rations at the proper time? Blessed is the slave whom his master finds doing when he comes. Now that's an allusion to the second coming. Peter is alluding to the end of the age when the king is going to return. The, the second coming when the king returns. What, what do we hear? A very sobering passage in Matthew chapter 7, which tells us when he comes, that many will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did I not perform miracles in your name? And then I will say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. I never knew you. I never knew you. We're talking about service. This is talking about lip service. Lip service is not true service. Notice those who come to, to him are relying on their works. They're relying on their own merit as opposed to throwing themselves at, the, at, at his feet for mercy and for the righteousness of his works to be given to their account. That is the hope of the gospel. That brings us to the third subpoint here, gospelizing. In the gospel, we are given the righteousness of Christ. We are given what we don't deserve. We are given the grace of God. We are given uh, God's righteousness at Christ's expense. 
That's what we're, that's what we're given. And that message, that is, this powerful message that changes lives and nations and families and societies, that powerful message is what God has ordained to use to, to draw fallen creation into covenant. To gospelize is to take that word, the gospel, and make it a transitive verb. It means to share the gospel. This is what we have been placed here to do, to gospelize people. It's a, a, a miraculous thing that has been given to us. Charles Spurgeon, the great uh, British uh, preacher in London, said, I contend for this, that to gospelize a man is the greatest miracle in the world. All the other miracles are wrapped up in this one. We have been be called stewards of God, and as stewards of God, we're placed here in the field to gospelize this harvest. And to gospelize them is not only bringing them in salvation, but it's ushering them as God's servants in worship. That brings us to the next point on your outline. We move from gospelizing to glorifying. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, whoever speaks is to do one is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Peter writes of speech that is glorifying God. The ESV renders this as one who speaks oracles of God. Dr. Gundry, I'll, I'll quote him here, he says, to speak as the oracles of God is to glorify Him by conveying a message from Him rather than concocting one's own message. Similarly, to serve with the strength that God supplies has the purpose of bringing him glory in all things through Jesus Christ, through whom Christians offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God, consisting in the proclamation of God's virtues. For these virtues, he merits glorification. In verse 11, look at the text of 1 Peter 4. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterance of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things, what? God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter talks about giving to one another. He's, he's moved to the ground, our giving as this greatest gift that comes from this, this master, this giver, this, this savior. Peter's passion for giving is flowing from this strength that God is supplying in him, this charisma, the Greek word for gift, that God gives to us so that we can share it with others. You know, studies show the benefits of giving. Studies repeatedly show us that, that people who give, that people who volunteer, that people who serve are more happy, they're less stressed, they live longer, their blood pressure is lower, their depression is reduced, they have better you know, careers and relationships. Giving people experience life in different ways. Now, now God's not, we, that's not to say, hey, you should volunteer more, your blood pressure will go down. No, it'll probably go up. But, uh, but the, point, the point is that in giving us life and in calling us into service and, and action for him, all of it is, is done not for our sake, but for his glory. Points of takeaway. You've been given preliminary thoughts of biblical theology, of, of servanthood and worship. We've seen the Petrine text, a community that's suffering and being called to serve him. I began the sermon with Psalm 100. We, we moved into Peter. As we're reading Peter and we read about the end of all things being near, the, the, the last days... I cross-referenced the king returning and saying to some people, I, I, you know, I never knew you, and casting them out. A point to conclude on, to reflect on as we close the sermon, is to think of retribution, to think of the universe coming to an end. The, you know, the end times. This isn't just a Christian thing. Atheists have end times too. We look in our, our telescopes, you look through the Hubble and NASA, and we know the universe is running out of usable energy. The universe is expanding. The universe one day will reach universal heat death. Way before, way before that, the Earth is, is impossible to support life. That's what's going to happen. Earth is eventually going to be swallowed up by the sun and become a white dwarf. And, and uh, not like Snow Wife and the Seven Dwarfs, okay? I mean, it's like a, you know, this is, that's what's going to happen. Now, of course, uh, we believe that that's not going to happen for us because the king is going to come and rescue his people. And the retribution and the death that the creation deserves is, is being rescued by this wonderful redeemer. And that's the next point. This wonderful redeemer who has come, who is God himself, who has become a man, 
and he's become a man to reconcile humanity to their maker. All of humanity is not reconciled. The Redeemer ransoms a people for himself. Uh, the rest rage against him. They don't want him. They, they kill him, they crucify him. But by golly, he raises up from the dead and he keeps on keeping on saving people to the break of dawn. He's doing it now. He's going to keep doing it this week. He's going to keep doing it until he comes back. And when he returns, will he find us faithful, proclaiming him and serving him. We're called to serve him. We've been saved to serve him. Now, mind you, we don't serve because he, he needs us. I, I, I hear people, you know, sometimes they'll say, the church is the feet and hands of Jesus. No, he's got hands and feet, and he's perfectly capable. We, you don't, he, he, doesn't need, he doesn't need anything. Look at Acts 17. This, this passage I love, Acts 17. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and in the earth, does not dwell in temples made with human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He doesn't need you. That, that flies in the face of our culture. The pastor saying, God doesn't need you. Oh, that, that made me feel sad. I like to think of him needing me. Well, guess what? He doesn't need you. That can sound bad to you, I understand. I'm, I'm sorry I made you feel that way, but it's time to wake up. He doesn't need you, okay? It sounds bad, it sounds bad or good depending on how you process it. If you are weak and feeble and prone to wander, that's good news. If you are proud and consider yourself strong and wise and smart, it's bad news because you, because you like being, uh, meeting others' needs. You, you like feeling like, you're, you're doing something or whatever, but to the broken, you realize, I'm helpless. I, I can't do anything. I can't do anything. To the broken, you realize, I, I'm lost. I'm, I'm wayward. I'm sinful. I, I don't serve. I don't give. I'm, I'm selfish. I need help. This is good news that he doesn't need me. Even more than not needing you, the, the, the good news in it is that he wants you, and he's chosen to love you, and he's chosen to rescue you. And he's, he's chosen one day to reward you. This is the, the, the next point on your outline. On the back at the top, he's, he's going to reward you for his work that he's doing in and through you. The master will reward faithfulness by bearing fruit in service to bless in this life and beyond in the life that is to come. Matthew chapter 5, we read, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. Your reward in heaven is great. Hey, they persecuted people before you. Don't let that get you down. Don't let that get you down. Turn that frown upside down and smile because your reward is going to be great. Hey, Matthew chapter 6, Jesus said, Do not store treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where, where thieves don't break in and steal. Listen, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You're going you, you, to live for whoever your master is. So if your master is uh, earthly prosperity, the American dream, the picket fence, or, or climbing the corporate ladder at work, or what, whatever your master is, that's what you're going to live for. You, that, that's where your time is going to go. And, and that's who you will serve. You're going to be a slave to something in this world. You'll be a slave to yourself. You'll be a slave to another man. Or you will, by grace, come to God, seek his forgiveness, and know what a good master he is. And we'll know that day when he returns, which is the final point of the message this morning. Commenting on 1 Peter chapter 4, Dr. Swindoll, the great preacher, said, the Greek paraphrase, the Greek phrase translated is near, is the verb engitso. The opening line literally says, the goal of all things has come near. Peter pictures Christ in heaven at the right hand of the Father, awaiting one word from the throne, Go! And so when the Bible speaks of the end as near or, or coming quickly, it refers to the suddenness and the unexpectedness of the return of Christ. That is, Christ could come at any moment. In light of this any moment view of Christ's return and the unfolding of the end time judgments, Peter says we should respond with certain specific action. What is the action? Service. We're at your service. Oh, Savior, we're at your service. Come for your church. Gather your church in the clouds. We are at your service in the earth until end. We'll, we'll, we'll serve our King. And you know, our service is worship. 
we serve, we serve as an act of worship. And so as we respond to the sermon this morning, we're going to come to the communion table. And as we come to the communion table, we have on it the very pictures of the service of our King. He poured His blood out for us, which the juice, the cup, reminds us. His body was broken for us, which the bread reminds us. He gave Himself for us. While we were yet sinners, He died for us. And He calls on you and I today to respond to His Word in repentance and faith, to come to the table, to reflect on Him, to celebrate Him. The Apostle Paul, when he was teaching about the table, this, this meal, this, or pieces of a meal rather, uh, he said, when we do this, we proclaim His death until He comes. So come, Delray Church. Let's come in song. We've, been, we've read in the Psalms, we're commanded to sing. We're commanded to serve. We're also commanded to repent. And we're commanded to lay down uh, enslavement in the world. And so let's seek Him to transform us now as we respond to His Word and celebrate His table. I'm going to pray and then we'll sing and we'll enjoy communion together. Father, we thank You for the ministry of Your Word. We thank you for the table that has been set before us. And we thank you that your son came to rescue us from this fallen world. Our mother and father crashed the car and Lord brought us into a world of hurt. And you saw fit to, to, to bring us into your family, to give us a new father that we otherwise would not have. We were lost. You came and found us and you placed us in your service. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us for serving other things. We spend so much more time serving other things than your people and your cause in the earth. If we, if we shared the gospel the way we serve these other things, uh, no doubt it would have reached the ends of the earth already. Lord, if we, if we spent the same amount of time that we do seeking earthly treasures on, on heavenly treasures, how much different this world would be. Lord, we... We're blind. We don't see. And so I pray that your Holy Spirit would now convict us of things that we need to let go of, of, of vices that have captured us, of, of thoughts that have ensnared our minds, of bad habits that we've been stuck into. Lord, rescue us. Change us. Use, use your Spirit within to draw us now, we pray. Use the table as we reflect on you, Lord, and we think of this great sacrifice to recalibrate us, to break us down, to build us back up, Lord, we pray. Have your way with us. We ask, we beg, we plead. In the name of Jesus, amen.